Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 17. I'm your host, Dan Holtzman, and today we have a very special guest, one of the most successful jugglers of all time, a good friend of mine, Mark Neiser. But before we get to the interview, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Now sit back, drop everything, get ready to listen to the wit and wisdom of Mr. Mark Neiser. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Mark Neiser. Hello, people. Mark Neiser, now, I was talking to you before the podcast started about sharing a very special time in, I believe, the history of juggling. A golden time I like to call the 80s. But let's let's go back first before we jump into the eighties. You mentioned that I was your idol. I mean that that's pretty awesome. Well, you the know, unblemished goat that you mailed me uh, is fantastic. By the way, I appreciate you bringing that by. I think as far as somebody who's had a great run through the the history of juggling, at least in my time, who seems to have always stayed busy, always stayed current, always stayed motivated, and really at the top of the field, only one guy comes to mind, and that that name is Mark Neiser. <laughs> I love the way you say it like a brand, too. It feels good. It feels and we great. had guys who were, who were hot for a while and then fell away. Like yeah. the name uh, Edward Jackman comes to mind. Oh, the greatest ever. You know, we've, we, his name comes up a couple of times. And I think uh, the people who knew him and knew him, especially through the IJA, he's a very big image, a very uh, strong character in our lives as jugglers. But to a lot of people, he's a mystery man. Like, who's Edward Jackman? Right. And to me, he was a initially uh, just this blow away juggler to me and then you know a mentor and then a partner and a friend and at the same time you know a terrifying force to be reckoned with that I had to babysit spoon feed as well so it was a mixed it was a mixed bag but I do love Edward and I I would love to you got to get the two of us on the podcast together that would be a great moment you know I've tried to reach out to him a couple of times I would say we were friendly that we were friends I guess but that we were never guys who really did much friendship outside of the circle of juggling. Mm-hmm. So certainly if you have any ins with him, I don't know anybody who's really even talked to him. Yeah, I can't find him. Yeah. I talked to with his wife a few years ago, and she seemed happy and uh, seemed like she thought that Edward would talk to me, but then uh, not able to finish the deal there. But he'd be a great person to talk to. What, what was, when was your first IJA convention? Uh, my very first IJA convention was 1979. And in Amherst, Massachusetts, and my brother and I drove there from Concord, which is about two hours away. I was, I'd been juggling, uh, I'm going to say, maybe two years. Okay. At which point I'd convinced myself that I was pretty sure, pretty sure I was the world's greatest juggler at that point. And I walked into that gym with a swagger that has <laughs> never been matched. Just like, yeah, I got this. And <laughs> I walk in, there's Peter Davidson doing head roll blew my mind next to him is edward i who knows what he was doing whether with the low five club five clubs with those uh those short handles yeah handled europeans um or maybe he was just doing five balls or something blew me completely off the map and yet i still competed in, in the championships just completely deluded that you know i still this is some sort of force to be reckoned with I, I actually, I, no, I'd love to know if anyone remembers my performance at that uh, event. I don't think there's any record of it, and I'm going to just, I'm going to leave it at that instead of exposing myself to some... Uh, well, you're lucky, because that was the year before I attended. My first uh, convention was 1980. 
Well, I can guarantee you that you wouldn't be interviewing me right now had you attended the 1979 Juggling Championships. Was the format basically the same? Because uh, for, for a while they had it sort of broken down into more like individual categories. And then it became more of what we know today as the current championships. In 1979, was it a stage competition? Well, it was in the gym, but it was still um, a team, a team acts, uh, solo stuff. Uh, I don't think there was a junior category, which is why I was automatically in. Because was I even? I guess I was still quite young. I guess I would have been like 14, probably. Um, I didn't lose. I didn't get last place. I might add. I beat Dave Finnegan. Okay. And I, that's pretty good. Uh, you know. <laughs> That gives you some street cred, taking care of that guy. Uh, well, he didn't juggle, though, in his performance. He just talked a bunch. So Right, right, right. I still, I still crushed it. Well, he's lucky he went on and was over to overcome that and become uh, the professor of confidence that we know him as. Well, he is a, he's an inspiration to me. I, you know, we, we, used to, we used to joke around about juggle bug and all that, but if you look at the breadth of this guy's work and his amazing parenting, uh, his... His uh, skepticism and taking the BS out of stuff, I really have admired him over the years. And uh, to this day, he's still passionate and still teaching and, and sharing the message. Well, it's interesting the way people uh, who have carved their niche in juggling, the different ways we've seen people do it. It's not all been the, the sort of Albert Lucas, Dick Franco mold that you and I had looking at when we started, which was, you know, you become this type of juggler that works your Vegas shows who has this sort of high-quality, circus-oriented eight, nine-minute act, where guys like Finnegan or the, uh, Carlo, the, the person who wrote the juggling book I learned from... Me too. Neither First one was what you would call uh, strong jugglers. Well, it's funny, you know, you mentioned the Vegas route. That was my total goal. I'm, I was inspired, really, by Barrett Felker uh, coming to my school with the Harlem Globetrotters, and that was my entire motivation, was to become a Harlem Globetrotter juggler, he even came to the gym where I practiced uh, in New Hampshire Hall there. And there's my idol doing five club back crosses on the same space that I practice in and gave me sort of that, oh, this is possible kind of vision. And that was that became the fire in my pants that I was going to do this no matter what. And we both you and I, ironically, you met my wife before I did in uh, Aruba doing a review show down there. So you were on the Vegas route as well. And I ended up doing that, I guess, for like five years. Atlantic City, Mont- uh, Montreal, the Kefcon for a year. You were Miami. at Travel Plaza, too. That was, uh... that was the last one we did. My wife said, I can't take it anymore, and basically moved to New York and said, you can come with me if you want. And <laughs> I followed her. Well, that was something people don't, uh, the modern jugglers really don't know much about, was when we started, like you would go to Las Vegas. you go to one of these gambling meccas. And up and down the strip in Vegas, there would be these review shows. And the format was really sort of variety acts and topless or scantily dressed uh, dancers. And the variety acts would basically fill time while they changed the sets, changed That's clothing. Right. So every, every show had four or five variety spots. So you right. go to Vegas, you see five or six jugglers. And then you go home and practice and you think, well, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be... Uh, 12 minutes. Yeah, I'm going to do my Albert Lucas or my Dick Franco or yep. uh, Chris Cremo. And so you said you learned to juggle from the book by Carlo. So did well, you learn to juggle my, in like 74? That was my first book. Mm, okay. Uh, my mother signed myself, my twin sister, and my brother up for a juggling class in seventh grade. Uh, it was adult education, but they made an exception, let us in. And so I learned from um, Hemlock, who was a Ringling Brothers clown. 
he somehow had either a layover or a hiatus between jobs, and he taught us in some kind of, I think, a high school classroom. Okay. Uh, three balls, I got the cross balls, and very quickly knew this was this is what I needed to quench the the over overstimulated brain. Now, the, I have a couple of questions about this. First of all, Ringling Brothers would allow a clown named Hemlock. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, that is shocking. He did die. Your deadly poison. Like, to name yourself class. after. Let's he see. Yeah. And I didn't drink the graduation beverage. <laughs> we got cyanide. We got uh, Hemlock. <laughs> and so, so whose idea? So you said you had some siblings. Were you the one that motivated this? Was this purely motivated by your mother, or who had? I think my mother was sick of us just okay. coming home from school and all this energy. I'd love to. I, you know, we should get her on here and find out the real reason I was sent off on this thing. Right. I had no interest in it and no mm. knowledge of what it even was. But as soon as it clicked, that first three ball thing, and you get that sort of gray matter turned on and the endomorphins going off, and I knew this was something special. And I very quickly became obsessed with all the tricks. And my brother and sister both could, can pass clubs and that kind of thing. But it did become sort of an obsession for me. And how did you get your early influences? I mean, you say you were in New Hampshire? Yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts. So I would kind of see the first group I ever saw live was Fantasy Jugglers okay. down in Faneuil Hall. I don't know if you remember them. I'm gonna Lana say, and Don Reed. That's very good. Very good. Yep. Uh, and they were passing Stu Reynolds fiberglass and moving back and forth and doing a chase. Who was the, there? Was another third guy in there too? They had a drummer, I think. There was another, yeah. Was guy. A, yep, with glasses and curly brown hair. You know, I just I never saw them because that was an East Coast thing. I, I think I'd seen them in a, at a Juggler's magazine. Yep, but they were the they were it, man. And then then Dario Pertoire, mm -hmm. uh, and he was he did a one man show. He and I became friends. I really admired him. Very uh, tall and classy and had this sort of beautiful movement about what he did. And then Slap Happy. Okay. So Alan Jacobs. Right. I remember being in, first time I ever, quote, performed was I went to Boston Commons with a friend of mine, Gibby Galis. He could play, what did he play? I don't even, was it the accordion? I think it was the accordion. So I, I juggled, he played the accordion, and it was the music stand, I remember that blowing over, and we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> Of course, you know, 50 yards away is Slap Happy, killing, making money hand over fist down there. And I just looked over in be bewilderment, trying to, couldn't get my head around it. But you were inspired by the street performers of that, of that generation. That's all I'd seen. Okay. You know, I, and then, well, we had the magazine. Right. The little newsletter that was stapled together. I remember seeing a picture of, I think it was, was it Barrett doing five clubs? And, and it had mentioned that Steve Mills had broken the record for five clubs. That was a minute and 15 seconds or something. And I was convinced that it was a, a print error, that they were mentioned, they'd meant five balls, that there was, because I mean, there's no way you could do five clubs. Right, over, over a minute. Right. And then I, I saw the picture of Ignatov, Ignatov, I guess is the correct pronunciation. And that just went up on my wall. And eventually, in college, I went to a professor from Boulder, came to UNH to teach, and then he said he knew me from the juggling club, and he said, hey, why don't you come with me to Boulder? You know, we'll do a street performing act together. And then I met Barrett, and, and Barrett had already come to my school, but then he was there, and Peter was there, and, and, and Air Jazz was there, so John Held and Kaziah, uh, John Leffingwell, Kit Summers was there sometimes, and I was just in, surrounded by this 
high quality jugglers all better than me and yet welcoming who who would who would invite you to come and want you to be in a place where you're taking their money and that I'm, was like a certainly part of the cream of the crumb of the of the jugglers back then oh we would, certainly peter davidson's another seminal figure of a, of a juggler who was a sort of out of his time it's like how do you get so much yeah. better than the rest of us yeah well he was an edward it was edward and, and peter in la mm-hmm. he came from la so he was he and edward and daniel rosen were all kind of in that that westwood group yeah that that were really a firestorm of talent but practicing behind peter i really wasn't even even close to this understanding of what he was doing and the amount of time it would take and to be standing directly behind him watching him do is that perfect three ball routine or or the beautiful head rolls that the perfect five ball routine which you know throw for throw no doubt it just it just really set that bar so high that some people go to the precipice and the the overwhelming practice it's going to take to become great makes you just step back and go, ah, you know what, I'm going to, I think I'll go become a minister or, or, you know, you just, you change your mind. Mm -hmm. And yet I saw it and I wanted it more than anything. So I started showing up long before anyone else got there and I would already be two hours in when other people would arrive and I would stay later just because I wanted to get close to this kind of quality that these guys had. And that's the only way I knew how to do it was just put in the time. Cause I was never like a natural or anything. I just practice more than everybody else. Yeah. It's funny how these scenes pop up around a, a certain pitch. You're talking like Boulder, Colorado had, uh, was the Pearl street mall. Yep. And yep. so you got a lot of timings. I remember seeing you in, uh, in San Diego. Right. That was, that was after that. I ended up going back to UNH, but then heard of this exchange program to San Diego and Kit told me about it actually in Boulder. He mentioned he was just leaving San Diego to come to Atlantic City for his fateful mm-hmm. performances there and mentioned you should go to San Diego, Balboa Park. They have a great place to street perform because he was kind of giving me kind of a heads up that he had had this spot that was so great and let me know that it was there. So when I had the chance to go to school there and kind of finish my degree, I just First weekend there, went to Balboa Park, started street performing, and I didn't. I don't think I missed one weekend except for the 1984 uh, Vegas convention. Well, it was a nice pitch. I mean, it's funny how it's you performed had, there. Oh, we, we, we and Barry would come down from Los Angeles. Yep, and uh, they had some kind of draw. I think where you got up really early in the morning. Yeah, you had to get your permit. Initially, we could kind of just get them, and it was us, and it was kind of set up. But then eventually, they made it. You basically had to sleep in the park. Yeah. To get the permit, I eventually became friends with a bunch of the homeless people, and I just had quote a partner that would sleep out for me. So that was near the you know after five years, I think the last two years I didn't have to sleep out. But the competition was so stiff, you had to get there at like you'd finish work, you'd go eat dinner, you'd take a shower, and you had to go back and lay down in front of the door to get the permit. And then you also teamed up with uh, Edward Jackman there in San Diego. Yeah, initially my partner, I worked alone, and then. I would often share with people, whoever were kind of coming by. There was a, a dancer that at one point that came by and shared with me. There was Ray Wald was mm-hmm. my very first kind of uh, San Diego partner. And we had, we had a great time. He, uh, do you know Ray? Yeah, he went on to work with Cirque du Soleil. Really? Yeah, the fire juggler, Ray Wald. Yeah. Well, he, right. He, he, when I knew him, he had just gotten out of the circus mm-hmm. and was very clownish. Uh, was really into hats and uh, cigar boxes and balancing 
And then we did a, a T-Mac together and had a good time. And then we also would just share, switch off and do our own individual shows. And he left. I don't remember where he went. Well, the interesting story about Ray is that, so at one point he decided to set everything on fire. Like that was going to be his gimmick. Right. I remember just thinking the permit paperwook on that's got to be crazy. But, and he was uh, always so sooty. He's got to be dead <laughs> cancer, right? No, no. He, so this is the story. Call me, Ray. Call me. He, uh, he, yeah, Ray, if you, if you can hear this with your one good ear, uh, give uh, Mark uh, <laughs> a shout out. But the story I heard was that uh, the show, the show O in Las Vegas, the Cirque show, you know, with the giant lake that's built into the stage and everything. Right. That initially the idea was that it was going to be fire and water, like not just water show, but a fire and water show. So they wanted to have this character who would represent fire, and that Ray Wald was going to be this character that represented fire and basically be the star or the co-star of the show, you know, as fire. Okay. And then as the show progressed, as the direction of the show progressed. The idea of the, the water became more and more to the forefront until the point where he has like one crossover where he sits in a chair and his whole chair is engulfed in flames. And that became like his almost entire role in the show. But the contract was from the time they thought he was going to be basically the co-star of the show. So hmm. he had a very good run, even though he ended up not doing that much. Wow. So wow. I think he's still there from what I heard. Really? Yeah. So he had oh, like, one of the... One of the sweetest gigs in uh, in juggling. It's funny how some guys end up with these these jobs. Like uh, Mike Godot comes to mind. Right. Can you imagine? Who ended up opening for Lance Burton. For uh, it's so funny the way I said Lance Burton because I had this cat, and we named the cat Lance Burton. <laughs> so so I have trouble because uh, he was wearing a tuxedo. He was a little tuxedo cat. <laughs> so I have trouble whenever I say Lance. Pur- you know, he's doing a twelve minute show for what was it, a ten year run he did. Yeah, I think he did the almost. I think he did the entire Lance Burton run because he wow. helped Lance put it together. And then, he, of course, he and Pendulette ended up doing the Bull Boot show. He became a writer and producer, and on the radio show, and another yeah. guy who's had a wonderful career, being in the right place at the right time, having a good act, and just being a steady professional performer. Yeah, and like you mentioned, Kid Summers earlier before, because Kid Summers, uh, you're talking about this fateful trip he had in Atlantic City. He was one of these another original mold of these comedy jugglers, like right. him and Mark Neiser, who were great jugglers, good-looking guys, uh, seemed to have a good instinct for comedy already and for what it took to be professional jugglers. Uh, where they learned all that, I'm not sure, because they were a little bit ahead of us as far as, or ahead of myself as far as the development as professionals. Well, it's funny. Kit had kind of had his act already developed when he was heading to Atlantic City. I was very non, apparently, according to my mother, I was never funny. And in Boulder, we, we kind of had a script. Alan Streeter is the guy that I worked with. We had a script. We actually competed in the teams in Ohio as well. We were called Anti-Gravity. Okay. And we wrote a show, like, around the kitchen table with, like, poetry and all this sort of very strange. I remember doing diving forward roll on a bed of nails. Oof, okay. I mean, this crazy, and we're wearing, you know, red spandex pants. And so I never really even understood the funny part until kind of watching air jazz. And then when I went to San Diego and working in the park, I was kind of just doing the pick and choose kind of comedy writing where you just kind of take stuff that you heard was funny and now it's in your show. And luckily, Ben Decker got a hold of me very early on we were juggling together and he said mark mark what are you doing man <laughs> and he threw me in his car drove me to san diego san francisco watched 
Uh, I'm going to have to get on. I may miss some names here. Sure. Flyman. Mike, was Michael Davis up there then? Michael Davis, yeah. uh, perhaps at the cannery or the anchorage. Yeah. So we went to the cannery. We went, we went everywhere to all three venues there. Watched all the acts with Ben kind of sitting next to me, whispering and sort of nodding and explaining. See, this is, and then this is why it's funny. And how, see how he's written his own joke and just took the time to kind of make me understand that this is a whole nother creative part of it and find this passion. And on the way back in the car, I wrote my very first joke. A lot of pe- people don't like me because I'm a ham and they're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 it stands the test of time. Yeah, it's still it's, it's still being a joke. It's still being a... Yeah. But when, once I understood that right. you could make something that is your own and have it not just be juggling, that also be the funny part. Because, you know, juggling, we're not really inventing new tricks all the time, but we're t- it's really how you present it. And the pride of having it be your own thing and your own idea was very, very appealing to me. And I will never be able to repay Ben for, for that sort of guidance. I still see people now that take that shortcut where they just need an act. They grab the pieces of the words and then that's a show. And then they, that's it. It's 30 years later. It's, they think it's theirs at that point, but it's, it's been lost. And sometimes you can recognize people like that by their, their prop bag like if you go to a street festival and you see a team and the team has seven clubs and six torches and two high unicycles right you go okay i pretty much know what that show is going to be it's going to be the build up from one to seven with the clubs right. 10 minutes getting on the unicycles <laughs> right. and then the passing but no there were guys i remember watching you and edward and one of my favorite routines was one of you played the hunchback <laughs> edward <laughs> is that edward yeah. And you were doing some sort of cigar yes. box stack. And yeah, and I I did the cigar boxes and yep. The thing the thing with Edward is we had a show. We we just got bored doing our solo show is what happened. So we ended up kind of just teaming up and doing a show for a while, which really was it was basically Edward's old team show with Daniel. Daniel Rosen. Mm-hmm. With me kind of replacing Daniel, right? But but I, that seemed yucky, and he kept calling me Daniel by accident. It was very frustrating. And and one day he just said, "Hey, let's let's just stop, and do a new show." And this is where my relationship with that Edward just became magic. He, I give him the credit because I don't think I had the chops or the knowledge or the foresight to kind of be able to guide and form this thing. But between the two of us screwing around. We made a brand new show that was very, I'm sure it was very rough around the edges. We wore these little blue gas attendant outfits, and it was just really fun and really unique. That's where the hunchback came from. We did re- some really stupid stuff, some really interesting stuff. There was a trick where he laid on his back with his legs sticking up in the air, and I would run up and jump on his feet. Mm. So he's laying on his back, and he would juggle, I think he juggled three balls, and then I juggled standing on his feet facing down at him and then i would i had these three bouncy balls and i would throw and bounce it off his face and he would knock it back up to me again you bounce it off his face right so he's laying on his back looking straight up with his feet 90 degrees pointing okay. straight up in the air, okay. and i'm standing on the bottom of our so the soles of our feet are touching I see. so you're going around his face like on the ground no, I would literally be juggling three balls and i would turn and throw one like i was doing a, a force bounce right. on the ground but it would hit him in the forehead, and okay. he would knock it back up to me. 
There's, there's it wasn't every one or anything. It was just every once in a I while. I see. I see. It's still pretty funny, though. And we did a, a thing where we exchanged just a vest, but we thought we were being very creative. I'd never done any of this stuff, so I, who knows? He was probably just lifting things from everyone else he's ever seen. I, and since it was new to me, I thought he was a genius. Now, did you have some sort of plan for your career? Or at what point did you decide, okay, because up to this point, it seems a bit haphazard. You went here, you went there, as far as sort of following these different muses, these different uh, influences. Did you then sort of take control and say, I need to have a, a path? Or what was your career sort of vision at that point? Initially, I just wanted to be a really good street performer. I, I became so into it and obsessed with watching that sort of hat number increase. And I, was ma- I didn't know what I was making more than I'd ever seen, you know, as a kid. Was independent, didn't need money for school or rent or anything. And that kind of seemed really interesting to me. But because of San Diego, I started to get a following and people would ask me to come to a corporate event and this and that, and, you know, I started to clean up a little bit, and, but I was always kind of learning, practicing with music as well, kind of imagining that transition. I did some college gigs with Ben Decker. Uh, He used to have a juggling night or something at UCSB. I did some of those. Those were just so much fun, and then I did the Vegas Championships, I got second from that. I can't remember where I... Oh, and I know what it was. I did that, uh, the American Collegiate Talent Showcase in college, Mm -hmm. which was basically a contest run by this amazing woman named Mother Hubbard, Hubbard, Barbara Hubbard out of Las Cruces, New Mexico. And she started this thing to sort of give college students a launching pad into the professional performing market. So she would put me in front of... So I competed in this contest. The first year I got second place. I won the second time I did it. And part of the prize was to tour, USO tour. So I got to meet Bob Hope. Mm. I got to go all over Micronesia. Right. On helicopters and just went everywhere, had a great experience. And then this, after I won the second time, I got some money. Uh, they put a scholarship at my school and got a good video with me, with Bob Hope and Mary Hart on this television show. And that's how I got my first review show, was submitting that tape to, to the review show and, and got that. The funny thing is, and then the opening night of that show, a different producer was there that was leaving, uh, Miller Reich, I don't know if you remember them. And he had seen me, and so he hired me after that run was over. Ironically, at that show, at, which was at Lily Langtree's in Pennsylvania, the production manager just really didn't like me for some reason. Mm-hmm. He was my roommate as well and had decided for some reason that I was, you know, all I cared about was being perfect and juggling and being funny. And I gave it everything. That's all I thought about all day long. And he accused me of dropping on purpose just to sort of mock him to show that I could still do well. (laughs) You overcome the, the drops. You did them intentionally. It was like a personal attack on him. Right. And he would say, Hey, Mark, stop it. Don't drop this show. <laughs> okay. Which, of course, yeah. I think anyone that juggles knows what kind of what yeah, that'll yeah, do. It's not really something you have control over in a, in a show to show. Well, now you're a shaky mess. Yeah. You're, you're overthinking every single catch. And it was, it was traumatizing. And this, this whole show was on plastic ice. So the whole, ice, the whole ground was sprayed with silicone oil. Mm-hmm. So it was completely slippery because it was an ice show. So I'm in regular jazz shoes on plastic ice doing my act. And he basically told me that I was fired. 
and you're you're pretty much done. This will be your last week. Just got to do press night. Press came, and I just did my best and just said, okay, I guess I'm done. And I was very traumatized, very upset and sad. And the reviews came out, and they loved my act. They they yeah, uh, right. they just, great reviews. Uh, he was fired. <laughs> there you go. And uh, and there, were, so I got to do the run, and I was kind of given given a second win there. But it was it was scary just knowing that one person could have that much kind of control over you. And I remember your review show act. You had a definitely some elements, like you say, of juggling to music, of that other style of juggler as well. Because there was a pretty strong division at that time between sort of the the comedy jugglers and the right. technical jugglers. And Edward kind of crossed over a little bit, but you definitely also crossed over and sort of helped to create this sort of new mold, which is sort of the, you know, the, the Ivan Passell, Josh Horton, great juggler, comic kind of vibe. Yeah. Because you and definitely I had still, some elements of some really, still some very strong juggling in your show. Yeah, I still like the music part. I think it was a good way to kind of break the ice in some ways. I, I can see that you certainly want to be updating your music over time so that things still have some mm-hmm. power to them. But I think, I think the comedy is, is definitely what makes it more than juggling. Because juggling can become very boring quickly if it's just juggling. However, great juggling with music can also be captivating. So I, oh, I still do both, even though you know, I might be a little slower in my old age here. Well, I think also for the theatrical performing you do, you know, your ability to go into performing arts theaters and sort of move into that realm, that uh, juggling to music does have a more of a certain artistry. There's been very few straight comedy jugglers who've been successful doing uh, theater or doing, you know, the, in, in the long run. Right. And how do you fill a big stage being one person? How do you make it more than a guy standing on stage juggling ping pong balls in his mouth? That's small. That's really small. And it's, it's too small. So you really want to find a way to make that thing become an event and that is where i really learned that by doing these review shows to see how important lighting was and the drummer and the music and you watch the production show how they really carefully use the lighting and then i ended up doing college gigs for 20 years in there where you'd show up in a hallway one day the next day you'd be in a theater but nobody knew how to turn the lights on or do a blackout there i remember one gig in a cafeteria they had the terrible ceiling speakers and i was oh no do you you have any other speakers and they sort of point to the closet and there's a brand new giant sound system in there still in the boxes never been taken out of it and they sort of just well if you know how to hook it up we could use it i'm like are you kidding me grabbed it i didn't know how to hook it up got that thing out there fired it up figured out how to get it together and it just it rocked the house so just by trial and error and fire, I learned that all I tried to do was get to every venue, no matter how crappy it was, and make make it as much as it could be. I remember one theater got there, and in the summer they had torn out all the lights. Not just all the lights, all the lights. There was no lights on stage, there was no lights in the theater. There was a spotlight in the back, and that was it. Are we going to cancel the show? What are we going to do? And I told all the kids to go back to their dorm rooms and get their desk lamps. And we daisy-chained them all together and put a big ring of desk lamps all around me on stage. And I did a show surrounded by desk lamps. Now, you were also uh, sort of in the heart of the college performing years. That was a venue me and Barry, unfortunately, bypassed. But like you said, there was a good 20-year period where... We used to have in the Jugglers magazine sort of a listing of where people were performing. 
mm-hmm. and you'd look at that. That would be how you sort of update yourself on where the other performers yeah. were. And you were just knocking down colleges one after another. So from unfair. the review shows, did you make a, a conscious intention to say, okay, that, that's the next step, colleges? Yeah, my, my wife was just burned out on the review business. I would still be doing that right now if it wasn't for her. So we moved back to Manhattan where she had an apartment. I started street performing again to kind of develop, get back my long show. And then I met a friend of mine, Charlie Mount, who was a fantastic comedian and did this weird 12 Days of Christmas mime thing, which was really hilarious. And he was a good friend of hers. And he said, hey, you should get in the college market. That's what he'd been doing. And so the college agency sent me out to SUNY Old Westbury out in Long Island. Mm -hmm. The, The toughest, toughest gig in the world. I mean, to this day, the toughest gig ever. Basically, if he could do this, he could do anything and threw me to the wolves out there. <laughs> she had a trial and by I fire. Tough, I remember people throwing beer bottles at me <laughs> and during the show. Right. But I got through it. It was fine. It was fine. It was pretty good. And then they took me into the college market and Edward had already plowed the road for us. He was a phenomenon. Phenomena there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing and i came in on his coattails because he had already come in and just crushed crushed the venue everyone was just amazed by what he was doing he was funny he had the whole package and there was definitely room for more people and i was ready i was ready i had the material had the time had kind of the passion to do it i was young uh these little pieces all had to come together at just the right moment and i was i was right there i know i'm way too old people they don't want I, I look out in a college crowd now, and I'm I'm older than the fathers of the kids that are in college. Now, you won a couple of the College Performer of the Years. Were those a big deal, and did they basically just skyrocket your bookings for the following years? <laughs> no. Colleges are, in when I was doing it, it was more about having a, an amazing showcase. So you would really go through a lot of trouble to have a great video, which I still think is the most, very most important tool to have to get jobs. A fan, absolutely killer video quality and great edit, great venue, very important. So I had a great video. Mm-hmm. I did, and I would get these showcases, and these college kids would all be there, and they'd see hundreds of shows. But if you had, again, that right combination, and I had been doing review shows for so long that so my at least my 12 minutes was super tight and I could go out and be pretty strong when you're doing 12 shows a week under high pressure, a college gig, uh, I mean, a college showcase seems like nothing. And that's really how I got all those gigs. And do you think uh, there is sort of an age ceiling? I mean, do you still showcase in that market or do you just get jobs sort of that are still Mark Neiser? Yeah, I don't. I do parents weekends now and occasionally people, I'll still put my self out there but i think i'm really past that for some reason i'd say i probably still do a couple of months for parents weekend i'm perfect for that and i could still do a college gig and they are still my favorite audiences of all the audiences i perform for because you have total freedom to do and say whatever you want no editing tough venue and a tough crowd but they are so tough that they make your comedy very strong because you, you can't just have this safe stage performance i think a lot of people suffer from stage safety mm-hmm do the, the safe show and they go, well, thank you. And they, they're not risking, they're not feeling the risk of having to be serious, very funny. But with a college gig, we're in a tough situation, often very few people. You, you have to drop this pretension and be real and be ab- absolutely in the moment 
kind of like a street performer and that's when you become their friend and they like you and that's when the show succeeds is when you stop when you when you stop being a performer and become a person very tricky skill to have and to be honest right well it's also that i think the start of this whole new school attitude that came up with us in the 80s where a lot of the jugglers or vaudeville performers before us were what you would call shticky you know right. sort of had that sort of phony show business gloss right where they weren't being successfully transitioned to these new venues that weren't review shows, where the audience was definitely expecting more, a longer presentation. You couldn't quite be as canned, and you had to sort of be a little edgier, but yet at the same time, always understanding that nobody wants, or, or hasn't seemed to want it, a dirty juggler. <laughs> right, right. And I've had people, I had college gigs where they'd say, can you please be dirty? Right. <laughs> it's very, very strange. And other gigs where I looked out and I was like, oh, it's a college crowd, perfect. And mention, I always mention to clients beforehand, I say, hey, is there anything you want to tell me about the group? And no, have a great time. And you go out and you think it's a college gig and it's a very conservative, the one in, one in particular I'm thinking of was a very conservative religious school and they were completely freaked out back in the day. I mean, I, my show, I've made it, it's quite harmless now. But Well, I think it's a good place for a juggler to come from, this idea that we don't want to be a family show per se in that, if you put us in the situation where we're a family entertainer, it's not going to work because they're expecting a more adult type of show. But certainly to have a show that's family yet adult, it doesn't have to be dirty per se. It's just your, right. your character has to be more relatable as a real person who relates to real things like an adult and not some kind of weird show business uh, cutout, cardboard cutout. And to have a show that can cover all those bases at the same time. And that's where I really think, because I've been doing performing arts centers exclusively for so long now, I can come in and kind of cover little kids to grandparents and all the ages in between. And everyone's going to find something that's going to be, wow, that really, that really reached me. And so I do have, I'm not expecting everyone to laugh at this or that, but hopefully each, each group finds the funny in, in their range and some stuff, the best stuff works on many levels all at the same time. So each person thinks they're getting the joke, but it's actually different jokes. I got a nice comment where someone came up to me and said, my show reminded them of a Pixar movie where hmm. people were, were enjoying it on different levels. Like some of the yeah. references, they weren't dirty, but the adults were really appreciative that I included them yeah. in, in sort of the narrative of the show. Mm -hmm. So what about the sort of inspiring juggler, someone who's looking at this, this sort of evolution of your career? What was your practice like? I mean, did you ever, like you say, you were pretty obsessive about it. What was sort of a, over the course of these years, what was sort of the practice regime like? I, I wonder if I practiced too much now. I remember practicing in Balboa Park every day, Monday through Friday, very long hours. I would say between, my memory was getting there at eight in the morning and I would go until in the summer, I would go until dusk and then go outside and do two street shows at Starlight Theater as they were, there was this outdoor venue and I would kind of go out front and kind of perform the stuff that I've been practicing that day. So I was, you know, I was doing like eight to 10 hours a day, five days a week, and then doing five shows on Saturday and five shows on Sunday in Balboa Park and couldn't wait to get back to the gym again on Monday. Now I, I can't even imagine that level of, of craziness. I remember working on five ping pong ball feed where you're mm -hmm. with the hands in the mouth. Yeah. I remember working on a seven ping pong ball feed pretty hard thinking when I get this down, then I'll send out my tapes to try to get some jobs. I mean, I, I was so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not realizing I'm, that the, uh, 
importance of those two extra balls was not worth waiting for. But it mattered to me. It really mattered. Every everything had to be super difficult and super advanced. When and now I realize that none of this has anything to do with why people hire you and how good your show is. Very few people have any clue. I've been. I started doing Boogang. Are you familiar with that prop? Oh, is that the uh, kind of the spiral looking? Yep. Prop, like an Aboriginal type of yeah contact. Okay. Staff. It's actually from Japan, the, mm. the reincarnation. Michael Motion's the first person to kind of reveal the shape, but never really discovered its true magic. And so I'm obsessed with this prop right now as mm. we become obsessed with each prop that we kind of fall in love with. Sure. And I've been doing it four months, and I'm very good at it already. Because if you compare it to juggling, let's learn, let's learn a kick up. That's going to take you <laughs> two years. Yeah, okay. I could do kickups with both feet now. I can't do it in the show with both feet. I use my right leg only. But even then, I'm taking a risk on every time that club leaves my hand and has to mm. meet my foot and then meet my hand again. Huge risks happening. I, I've, you can't drop a boogang unless you have a heart attack or something. Sure. And I'm getting ovations for it. Mm. For a trick that I've, I've barely been working on for few months and now i'm getting the kind of thing in a show where the applause is too long you're like no no you please stop i have to continue because the visual impression is leaving on the audience is so strong that i think it's just so different than anything else i do in the show Mm -hmm. and it's very quiet the way i do it it's very quiet i have a lot of lasers and interactive video and robotics and fog and and all this attack on the senses, and then I stand there with a single white spot, a white light from above, a simple piano song, and nothing else. No, just me doing nothing. I, and I think it is an interesting prop, too, but it's, it's fascinating that that can succeed so much when I had spent so much time demanding that I'm going to do a, a whirlwind with three clubs and they'll finally like me. Well, but you've always had a guy who's looking at all the angles. I mean, you're one of the first persons, uh, first person people to embrace technology uh, mm-hmm. as far as this idea of always staying current. I think a lot of the older guard is just sort of like, oh, I'm still using the same clubs. I'm still mm-hmm. using the same even promotion that I did. And yet you were a guy that uh, sort of, did you fall in love with technology or, or how did that become possible for you it, to be such a... Directly related to the college market because I would show up at these theaters and I wanted to do a blackout to make this look interesting. They had all these lights that I'd used in review shows, but no one knew how to turn them on. Or if they did, I had to train some kid to, I had to learn the light board and and teach him to have 10 cues would take three hours of tech rehearsal. Cueing music was very difficult. So I was always sort of building my own remotes for this. I know Carrie Pollock had a Mm -hmm. big system, but I always made my own stuff. And so as I moved into, into review shows, I mean, into performing arts centers, I was just amazed at how much time I was wasting getting everything ready. And as I slowly understood how that stuff works, I was like, oh, I want to turn on this backlight with a remote. So I had like an RF remote on my belt for the light, another RF remote to turn on the fans, foot switches to control the music. I I literally clanked out on stage and then slowly learned from production managers and all the people that mentored me that, oh, I could just use this technology and then i so over the years i've built literally a a control system that lets me do my show has 2900 cues in it right now um and everything everything's controlled uh, from my belt right so i run all the lights all the sound video automation um, midi touch osc there's just all this stuff talking to all the fog machines are controlled i have things that throw props catch prop drop props on the ceiling 
Bluetooth stuff. It's just it's this whole thing, and it's the technology is perfect every show. So I don't even juggle to the music anymore. I juggle to the lights because mm. the lights are written per throw. Right. So they are one the three ball routine. I think has three hundred light cues in it. Well, that's in- a really good lesson for the for the people who are coming today. It's like I was talking to uh, Steve Gatz on the last podcast about how technically juggling improved tremendously. Like you're saying that the five club jugglers, the seven club jugglers, the length of time they could do it, the difficulty, the difficult tricks like five club back crosses that became a lot more common. Mm-hmm. But as far as the comedy jugglers, it really didn't improve much like from the 80s, from the, the Michael Davises and right. the Edward Jackmans and the passing zone and people like that. But, it wasn't like a lot of improvement has been made. But when yeah. you start talking about what you've accomplished, and I think that's so so important nowadays is to come into a whether it's a cruise ship or a performing arts center, with what we would call a real show and a real show tech. Right. But the, the, the catch-22 here is you also want to come in and be the easy guy to work with. Sure. You can't come into a show and hand somebody a 400-sheet tech rider with all these cues that some guy that has no idea who you are is going to have to is going to be able to learn or or pull off in any situation. So my goal is to make that be invisible to them. So all I do is I simply say, let me see what you, what do you have available, and then we move the bar as far as are they going to put some colors in the lights for me? But I don't need a human at the show. Once the show begins, I don't need any humans there to trigger anything because it's sort of. Automated, But, you know, you mentioned Michael Davis and Edward. A great comedy juggler at his best doesn't need anything. Mm-hmm. He just needs a light on stage, three balls, and can pull off this amazing performance and doesn't need all that stuff. Now, I do it because I do want to make a theatrical evening out of it so people can come in. There's a sort of a pre-show thing happening. There's a story. There's this whole other kind of thing happening on top of the juggling thing. There's some comedy and there's there's just other levels of it, and that's mostly me just playing because I, I, I love to play with all my toys and 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 trigger things and have things become a little more than uh, what they can be. But without again, without it making it more complicated for me, making it easier for me. Well, this idea of being able to control all of your own uh, cues, I think that's what yeah. why me and Barry went to the wireless system for just even just for the music. Right. Uh, I never did much with the light cues, but you would go in, and even if you had let's say twenty, thirty cues. You're yeah. talking a couple hours, two or three hours with the sound person. Right. Who And they never get it right. They never get it right. And a lot of times not in their was, not their fault. It's well, just, it's hard in a one night yeah. situation, especially when you're not always given the time you need to do the proper tech. But this idea, I mean, like you're saying, just to stand out there by yourself, like on a comedy club stage or or just to be able to have great comedy juggling is, yeah. is the art form itself. But yeah. to sort of understand this need to put on a show sort of understand what a theatrical show takes and how to mount one and how right. to sort of navigate all the different ups and downs this uh, career is thrown at you. And uh, how is your body feeling after all these years? I mean, do you have That's any That's a yet? great question, Dan. <laughs> um, any nagging injuries? I believe we are the same age. Were you born in... You're, are you younger? I was born in 61. I was born in 61. I'm uh, December of 1961. Right. So you're a month younger than me. Okay. I'm November. I was doing poorly at one point because I was getting really tight and it just hurt so bad to move around. But my wife is a yoga teacher and which I actually thought was fine. I just never really thought much about it. And when we moved here to Virginia, I started going sort of begrudgingly knowing that I could just go show off my incredible skills 
And then I would have 15, 75 year old women kick my butt. And then I'm, you know, I was just trying to work so hard to catch up to them. And then eventually I learned that it's not about the journey, the race. It's just about your own personal journey. And it's changed my entire body. I'm, I got my body back. I'm not in agony anymore. I am more flexible than I've ever been. I do my show and I feel all this extra movement that I never had before. And so I feel really good and very hopeful for the future. I'm still, I still, I just practiced two and a half hours today. Nice. And felt great. Felt great. I'm getting a little, you know, I got a little chubbiness going on there. The spandex onesie doesn't quite uh, <laughs> look so good. What are you but... up to, a 30 inch waist or something? Something. <laughs> I think I can still get in my, in my uh, tux I got married in. Nice. But I, I did, my daughter was sitting with me at lunch the other day and I had a button shirt on and she's like, Dad, I can see your chest. And I looked <laughs> down and yeah, sure enough, you, the buttons were kind of pulled apart a little bit and you could see some skin there. So. And how long do you think, uh, I mean, do you have a sort of a retirement scheme at this point? You're gonna, is there an age that comes well, to mind? Well, 59 and a half, I can access my 401k, which I started when I was 17 mm-hmm. after I read the book Financial Planning for Dummies. So I am, I'm cash poor, but I, uh, when I'm 59 and a half, I'll, I'll be able to uh, technically retire, but I, I don't think I can retire. Right. I love what I do. I look forward to every performance that I do. I, I think about it all the time. I still work on my show every day. Right now, sitting at my desk, I have two iPhones. I'm building a live a way to do live video with iPhones so, you, so people can see what I see when I'm juggling. Hmm. To my right, I have uh, 96 individually addressable LEDs and two Arduino units and some Bluetooth Bluetooth MIDI devices that are going to be able to let me hook these up to some props I'm building that will be acceleration controlled. So as they move, the acceleration will change the lighting, mm. things like that. So I'm building all this cool stuff. I got, I don't know, 45 white boxes behind me that I'm using for another project that I'm working on. No, that sounds fantastic. I mean, I think you have the best of all the worlds. You're saying that financially you plan for the future. You have a, a lovely family. What's, uh, what's, uh, what's family man Mark Neiser like to do? <laughs> I, I like to sit on my porch and drink martinis. <laughs> okay. That seems to work pretty good. I play with my dog, fly drones. I still hang glide a little bit. Uh, but I, my passion really is, is still building and inventing new things to, to perform with. So that's really kind of fascinating to me. My oldest daughter is a ballet dancer with the uh, Suzanne Farrell Company at the, uh, the Kennedy Center in D.C. Middle daughter is a college student, and my youngest daughter is a high school student. Wow. I mean, you've had a, a great life, a great uh, career in juggling. And uh, I'm going to try to hit you just with some last rapid-fire questions to end up our, our podcast on. Well, the answers are yes, no, maybe, sometimes, never. Okay. So, so try to do them in that order. <laughs> well, the first one is joggling. Is Mark Neiser ever been a joggler or interested in joggling? <sighs> okay, so where do we draw the line here? I do a thing where I, I knit while juggling, okay. and I was wondering how many gold medals I could win knitting while juggling. Is that niggling? Or, or blinking my eyes <laughs> while juggling. no. It should be banned and stopped as soon as possible. Yeah, the one that irked me was like the, when I was in the Guinness Book of World Records, like surfing yeah. and juggling, or now he's skiing and juggling. Like, no, no. Really? Really? I can sit on the toilet and juggle better than anyone I've ever met. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, I think I did a five-ball pirouette on the toilet once. Okay. okay. That's pretty impressive. All right, let's go. The other, what about combat? Are you a guy who uh, is into the... I have done some combat. Uh, I remember doing combat with Wes Peden mm-hmm. when Shoebox came through town. I don't even think I was in that game because I was too concerned about the, the insanity of it. 
and some kid hit his wrist with a club mm-hmm. and damaged the tendon, the sheath that goes around the tendon. Right. So when he moved his hand up and down, it was agony. It's swollen and it really had wrecked it. And he had a show the next night and couldn't have performed. But luckily, luckily, a friend of mine is a physician, fired him with a shot of cortisone there and saved him. So it is dangerous. I, I like it, I guess. I, I'm more into just work, practicing, working on my stuff. I do pass clubs quite a bit now, which I never really was interested in. But that's because my friend Tom Hamill, who wrote all this in passing column for mm-hmm. magazine, and we actually do a little YouTube channel, he is an idiot savant of passing. And every week he is basically scribbling numbers on napkins and comes in and goes, hey, I think we should try this this week. And gives me that feeling of being a kid again, where I'm completely challenged, completely out of my league and then suddenly it clicks and you get that the rush the the juggling rush that we so rarely fa- feel anymore and oh it's so <laughs> so great it's so great i i, I remember that rush panel. yeah <laughs> the excitement well, I, mean, I get it every wednesday dan there you go. and what was the, the contact with this youtube channel you were talking about is it uh, easy it's, for it's us to find in passing in passing yeah if you just google that or if you just go to juggler .bz. My, my idea of combat changed a little bit when I, I was at Israel at the Israeli Juggling Festival. Well, they have to do combat there. I mean, that's kind of part of the training, right? Exactly. You have to do some military service if you're going to even go to the festival at all. Yeah. But uh, had a great time, but they, they had this thing called Fight Night, International Fight Night, which is more of sort of a one-on-one, mano-a-mano kind of tournament. Okay. I have to admit, uh, a little bit more of a, a fan now that I saw that. I oh, think... Uh, okay. I was exposed to more of the, the WJF, yeah. sort of uh, co- uh, zombie yeah. juggling yeah. or sumo juggling or something like yeah. that. What does Mark Neiser think about the WJF? Are you a uh, I am a fan. Att- you attend yeah. those? I have been to some of them. Um, Jason Garfield, to me, is this just a, a creative force to be reckoned with. You know, he, he's insane, and he'd gladly accept that credo, I'm sure, hearing me say it. We're... we're and and yet I think he's very passionate about what he does, and he is—he's a genius. So I think it's a great idea. I'd love that the more exposure. He, hey, we're in ESPN. You know, how do you beat that? The I actually the zombie juggling. The Hodges are the greatest zombie jugglers, zombie combat jugglers I've ever seen. So okay, the Hodge family. Oh yeah, yeah. They actually they were part of the club for a really long time. He's gone off to school now, but. Um, those guys are just, yeah, they crank out the jugglers. It's just right, one right after another. You should talk to uh, Chris when you get a chance. Yeah, I, I haven't uh, spent too much time uh, with Chris cause, since I don't really go to IJ festivals very much anymore. So I've been kind of out of the loop of the Hodge family. I don't know how many of them went on to become professionals. They were quite good young amateur jugglers. Yeah, and they've all sort of sidetracked from there. Chris was actually part of the circus school up in Quebec City. Okay. Not the Montreal know. one. Yeah. But um, didn't really, didn't really actually excelled juggling wise, but didn't quite really integrate well into the group so much. So he is actually getting a degree at VCU in zoology or biology right now. Well, we've seen a lot come and go. I mean, uh, since our days as the the early '80s at the IJA, you know, up through this current time where you're still, uh, like you say, feeling good and excited about juggling. I'm still here. I'm still in juggling. We've had a lucky run, Dan. <laughs> We've I had a pretty back, good run. I look around at all my friends, and I think back to us children playing together and hanging out and just street performing, all of them, from the Passing Zone to the Raspini Brothers to 
to so many people and we've all most of us have come through it and had a good life from it um scott and joan houghton i don't know you know uh, they, Jesse they were and disorderly James. conduct yeah and they were and they're jesse and james now they have a dog act mm -hmm. they have beautiful house in baltimore their kids have just had a great life growing up in this thing we've made something where we were told it couldn't be something and to me that passion of living your dream and having that passion and that's all i try to teach to my children so that they keep playing in their life, keep finding what they like. And I, I, I say this on my show even, that if you do find what you love, you're never going to have to go to work. You will want to get up. I have trouble sleeping because I have so many ideas. Well, what better way to end than with those wonderful words of wisdom? I mean, what a great credo to live your life by. And, and like you say, we, we kind of came up through this time that the IGA had real importance. Every time you saw a video of a juggler, it had real importance. Oh, yeah. Because there really wasn't a path that we were following. We were sort of creating as we went. We all went off in a little bit different divulgence of a, of a, a degree here or a degree there. Yeah. We all kept bumping into each other and seeing how these different people were navigating through this world of juggling. And I have to say, I do think that you've navigated it about as good or even maybe the best of any other well, that's my, very kind of you, Dan. I just feel very lucky, I think, in some ways. Things, li some things lined up in certain ways. I mean, I certainly put in the time, too. But I have to say, and since you gave me $400 to say this, mm -hmm. the, the IJA has been my family. I mean, these guys, from every person I met at the MIT Juggling Club to just all over the world, I know I can go anywhere and say, hey, I'm a juggler. Uh, oh, come on over. Here's my house. Here's a key. Drive my car. I'll see you tonight. It's been my family. I love the randomness of the people that it brings together, that we're all brought together by juggling, but no, you can have friends that have all other belief systems or everything. And we just mix together. And I just feel this amazing gift from that, that I never have experienced in any other sort of world. Well, we live in good times. I mean, it's a, just to think back and go, I was a professional juggler, or I'm still a professional juggler. And the history of juggling, just kind of the way we can look back and see, like the jugglers who we only think of in black and white, you know, then all of a sudden we, we entered into the world of color. It's like well, Bobby it was, made uh, exactly. Michael Davis was a, was a big jump. Right. Oh, he, he, was, he just really did it. Well, let's end with one thing, Mark. If you had to look at the young Mark Neiser and, and some young juggler, Starting today, not in the times we came up, but starting today, loves mm -hmm. to juggle, can really resonate with what you're talking about as far as he's found this passion. He wants yeah. to now turn it into a livelihood. Take him aside for a second and, and give him a little bit of a, that Mark Neiser wisdom. I would tell him to go street perform somewhere and find his voice, his unique voice of who he is and what his character is. And I don't even want it to be a fake character. I want him to be whoever he really is because that experience is going to make you a great performer and a funny performer and make your show more than a guy standing there juggling doing the same old crap over and over again so that that's what i would do so find your true authentic voice get out there do a ton of shows and maybe if you if you're lucky you could have half the career of my friend mark neiser thank yeah. you so much for being on the drop everything podcast number 17 the great Mark Neiser. Thank you. Great to be here and that check better clear. Okay. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 17, my conversation with the ultra successful, the ultra talented, the ultra man, Mark Neiser. 
Thanks to our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association, a group I've been involved with for over 30 years. If you want to get involved with this great group of jugglers, find out more at juggle.org. Thanks again to my engineer, Karen Holzman, all the listeners. Thank you so much, and drop everything except when you're juggling.